0: Well, if you have your Bibles with you again this morning, I invite you to turn with me to the first book in the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 26. If you're a guest with us today, we've been studying through the Gospel of Matthew and we're making our way to the end of the Gospel. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 1057, Matthew chapter 26. And we'll begin reading in verse 17. And I'll speak for a few minutes on this subject this morning. Betrayed, blessed, deserted, and denied. Matthew chapter 26. We'll begin reading in verse 17. And this is what the Word of God says. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying... Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? And he answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Years ago, sitting in a breakfast meeting for pastors, I heard a statement that I will never forget. In the middle of his talk, the speaker said, it is lonely to lead. And for pastors, it is especially lonely to lead. And as I was thinking about the passage before us this morning, as well as the texts that are yet to come in Matthew's Gospel, this statement regarding loneliness and leadership kept resurfacing in my mind. For in Jesus' final journey to the cross, he will experience the betrayal of a close companion, the desertion of 11 of his closest followers, and the threefold denial of one who emphatically declared his allegiance. Jesus will experience the loneliness of a garden, a nighttime arrest in the circus surrounding that detention, the crowd choosing a notorious prisoner instead of him. He will experience scourging and mocking and crucifixion and the ultimate act of loneliness, being forsaken by His Father while He hangs on the cross with the weight of the sins of the world placed upon Him. Yes, friends, it is lonely to lead. And for Jesus, it's the ultimate loneliness. And as Matthew continues to chronicle Jesus' journey to the cross, the pace of the narrative slows considerably. As one commentator describes, it has slowed down enough for each and every reader of this gospel to sense that something horrifically violent, yet strikingly beautiful, is set before our eyes. And in this passage before us, Jesus continues his preparations for the cross as he travels further down the path of loneliness, experiencing betrayal, desertion, and denial, and all the while extending one final blessing to his followers. So would you notice with me first of all in verses 17 to 19 the preparation for the Passover. Now, both the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were so closely associated in the minds of the Jews that in verse 17, Matthew uses the Feast of Unleavened Bread as a comprehensive designation that also included the Feast of Passover. And while these two names were used interchangeably to designate the eight-day celebration that commemorated the deliverance of Israel from Egypt, the Passover, as Matthew notes in verse 17, was only celebrated on the first day. Now this feast of unleavened bread that Matthew refers to was named after the type of bread that the Israelites were to take with them when they left Egypt in haste. The ordinary bread of that day, as in our own, used leaven or yeast to make it rise and become soft. And when you study Scripture, throughout it, leaven is used to represent influence, and most often, evil influence. As a result a symbol of leaving behind all of the evil influence and the cruel and pagan captors from Egypt, the Israelites were not to take with them any remnants of leavened bread that had been prepared in Egypt. And as a part of this memorial and this feast that they celebrated each year, they were to remove all of the leaven from their homes and they were to eat only unleavened bread for seven days. And to celebrate the Passover, the Israelites would gather together in their homes and share a symbolic meal that also put memorial to their deliverance from Egypt. And just as the lambs had been slaughtered, That night in Egypt, and their blood sprinkled on the doorpost to protect the firstborn of every home from the death angel, so lambs were slaughtered for the Passover feast, and their blood was sprinkled on the altar in the temple. And just as the Israelites cooked the lamb and ate it as they were fleeing Egypt, so too the Israelites, in celebrating the Passover, would cook and eat this lamb as a memorial. Additionally, as they sat for this Passover feast, four cups of wine were served during the meal, symbolizing the four promises that God made His people in Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. And the bowl into which they took the unleavened bread and dipped it was full of bitter herbs. And sometimes they used their bare hands to dip in there. It also contained a paste that was full of ground apples and dates and pomegranates and nuts. And this paste, this mixture, was used to represent the bricks and the mortar and the straw that the Israelites were placed under and the heavy burden by Pharaoh to labor and work. And they would take all of this and they would eat it and share a meal together as a picture and a symbol of how God had been faithful to deliver his people from Egypt and it was probably early on Thursday morning that the disciples came to Jesus in verse 17 saying where will you have us prepare this meal of the passover now luke in his account of this event he identifies the disciples who approach jesus as peter and john And when you study the Gospel of John, you find that in God's redemptive plan, it was necessary for Jesus to keep this Passover meal with his disciples. It was his final opportunity to teach them privately and to have intimate fellowship with them. But even more importantly, as you'll see as we look carefully in this text Jesus will transform this Passover supper of the Old Covenant that was marked by the shedding of Lamb's blood into the Lord's Supper of the New Covenant that would be marked by the shedding of His own blood for the forgiveness of sins. And you'll notice in verse 18 of Matthew chapter 26, Jesus answers Peter and John's question, saying, Go into the city... And find a certain man. Now, Mark and Luke tell us that this man would be carrying a pitcher of water. And as a result, he would have been easy for the disciples to identify because his activity of carrying a pitcher of water was highly unusual for men in that culture. And when the man was found, The disciples were to say, according to verse 18, the teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. Now, the man that was carrying this pitcher of water was probably a servant in the house where the meal was to be eaten. And according to Mark, when Peter and John identified this man and found him, they followed him to the house and they spoke to the owner of the house who showed them, as Mark quotes, a large upper room furnished and ready. And from Mark's account, we can understand that Jesus somehow had prearranged for this meal to be eaten in the room of the owner of this house. And because Peter and John were told by Jesus to refer to him as the teacher, both the man carrying the water pitcher and the owner of the home were likely believers, and they had understood who the teacher was and who was requesting this room for this meal. Now notice carefully probably the most important phrase in these opening words of this text. Jesus Instructs his disciples to say, my time is at hand. There's several different Greek words that are used for time. And the word that is used in this passage refers to a specific and often predetermined period or moment of time. In other words, when Jesus says, my time is at hand, he is speaking of a fixed determined time. And the reason why this phrase is so significant is that if you study the early life and ministry of Jesus, you find on three separate occasions. And Jesus said either to the crowds or to his own followers, my time has not yet come. But here, In this verse, Jesus now proclaims that the hour for him to be glorified has come. His time is at hand. And when Jesus says this phrase, he was saying that his heavenly father's divinely appointed time when he would go to the cross had come and just as he sent his disciples to prepare for the passover and Jesus was sharing this meal with his disciples it was all a part of his preparations for the cross because his time his fixed predetermined time from before the foundation of the world to die for the sins of the world had come and he was preparing To go to the cross. Now friends, this first scene reminds us simply that God is sovereign. And if you've listened to me enough, you know that this is a constant drumbeat that I put before you. But there's a reason for that. Because sovereignty is a soft place to rest our lives and to rest our heads and to rest our fears and our anxieties and our worries. And even right here in the Gospel of Matthew, when the events of Christ's life or even in our life seem to be hurtling out of control, the Gospel reminds us that God is the master and the sovereign of time. And if God is sovereign over the life of Jesus and over the time that He would go to the cross, I would remind you this morning that He is sovereign over your life and your time. And just like His timing was perfect in Jesus' life, it will be perfect in your life no matter what you say to yourself. Therefore, You can take comfort in this reality. You can cast your burdens and prayer on this hope. And you can rest in this God as he fulfills his purposes for your life in his perfect time. Just like he did in the life of his son. So we not only see the preparation for the Passover in this text. Secondly, we see the pronouncement in the Passover in verses 20 to 25. Matthew says that when it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful. And they began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? And he answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, You have said so. Many believe that it was approximately at 6 o'clock on Thursday evening. And although the original Passover meal in Egypt was eating in haste while they were standing with the Israelites loins girded and the sandals on their feet and their staff in their hands, the practice and observance of this ceremony had changed and it had become more leisurely. And you'll notice in verse 20 that rather than standing, Matthew says that Jesus was reclining at the table with his disciples in fellowship. Now, as I've mentioned to you before, when you're studying these narrative passages in the Gospels, it is always helpful to compare what Matthew says with what Luke says and what Mark says and what John says about these events. And Luke, in his account, at the beginning of this passage, records this statement that Jesus says to his disciples, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Can't you picture it? It's not that he's just leisurely sitting there reclining at table with his disciples. There is a passion and a desire inside of Jesus To share this meal. And the whole backdrop around this meal is the loneliness of the cross. And yet, in the midst of that backdrop, Jesus says to them, I've been waiting to eat this meal with you. I have desired this time together. And even on the heels of Jesus expressing this passion and desire to his disciples, Luke tells us that as the meal progressed in Luke twenty-two twenty-four, 24, a dispute also arose among them as to which one of them would be the greatest. How could they do that? That's what you're thinking. That's what I'm thinking when I read the text. And I would just remind all of us, we're the same way. If we would have been sitting there with Jesus, we would have probably been saying and thinking the same things. Don't kid yourself. And it was probably at this time that Jesus, as John says, rose from supper, laid aside His outer garments, and took a towel, and He began to wash the disciples' feet. And in John thirteen fifteen, John says that as Jesus was doing that, He specifically explained to the disciples why He had washed their feet. As an example that they would do just what he had done. That they would quit thinking about greatness and they would start thinking about service and serving one another. And the reason why Jesus gave them this example was that because washing another person's feet was normally done by a servant and it was considered to be one of the most demeaning tasks. And Jesus, the Son of God, The one who would die for the sins of the world humbled himself in selfless service and gave a stinging rebuke to the disciples' pride and gave them a profound lesson of what true greatness really is. And not only did he show them by example, Luke says in Luke 22 verses 25 to 27 that Jesus said to them this verbal rebuke. Who serves. And after this display of humility and these words of rebuke in verse 21, look at what Matthew says. That while they were still eating, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. The word betray that Matthew uses here literally means to give over and was often used of delivering a prisoner over to prison or punishment. Now notice, this is the first time that Jesus mentions his betrayal. And John, in his account, adds this to these words. Jesus was troubled in his spirit when he said this. Think of it. Sitting around a table. Jesus expressing his desire and his passion to share this meal with his closest followers, only to see them begin to posture and fight amongst themselves over position and over so-called worldly greatness. All the while, as John records, the one who would betray him and hand him over to prison is sitting right beside him. And Jesus In his desire and his passion took no joy in what he said to them. He was troubled in the very soul of his being that he would have to pronounce this betrayal. And in response to his pronouncement, Matthew says in verse 22, do you see it? That the disciples were very sorrowful and they began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? Is it I? Can't you see the scene? All 12 of of them reclined around the table, and one by one, Is it me, Lord? Is it me? Is it me? Daniel Doriani said, As much as each disciple was horrified at the thought, each knew they could betray Jesus. For the potential for unfaithfulness dwells in every disciple, both then and now. And we see this played out clearly, friends, in verses 31 to 35, where Jesus quotes Old Testament prophecy and says, I tell you, all of you are going to desert me and flee. And Peter says, oh, no, not me, Lord. All these other ten yahoos, they'll flee. I'm with you to the end. No, Peter, before the rooster crows three times, you'll deny me. I won't, Lord. I won't fall away. I won't deny you. I'm with you to the death. And you know the end of his story. John, in his account, records that the disciples were so grieved by Jesus' words that someone would betray him that they looked at one another uncertain of who Jesus was describing and Luke says that in their uncertainty, listen to this. Now they had just fought amongst themselves about who was the greatest. And now Luke says that they began to question one another, which one of them it would be who was going to do this. Can't you imagine it? Just just use your sanctified imagination and just select one of them. Just select Peter. He's the easiest one to pick on. Can't you just see it? Can't you just see him looking at James? James, I'm sure it's you. I'm sure it's you, James. It'll never be me. I'll never do that. Or maybe it's you, John. You've always been his favorite, but I bet you're going to do it. I bet you're going to walk away. And in verse 23, notice how Jesus responds to their questions. He says that the betrayer is the one who dipped his hand in the dish with him. (laughs) Now, you've got to see Jesus' sense of humor here. At this point in the meal, all 12 of them had dipped their hand in the bowl with him, right? He did not clarify for them. He did not relieve their anxiety or their worry. But John in John thirteen eighteen, records that Jesus quoted from the psalmist and said, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. And he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. So Jesus reassures them that only one of them is guilty and the other 11 truly belong to him. But he does not relieve their anxiety. And now in the midst of their shock... Jesus reassures the disciples in verse 24 by reminding them that this act of betrayal was a part of God's sovereign plan for His Son. Look at what He says and notice it carefully. The Son of Man goes in this betrayal as it is written of Him. Would you listen carefully this morning, friends? Jesus did not fall prey to the scheme of the chief priests. He did not fall prey to the scheme and the posturing of the elders. Jesus did not fall prey to the betrayal of Judas. To the contrary, Judas, because of his willful rejection of Jesus, was the key instrument in God's sovereign plan to send his son to the cross. And even though this betrayal was prophesied long ago... And even though God used this betrayal to fulfill his sovereign plan, notice what Jesus says at the end of verse 24. Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had never been born. And what I want you to see is that even in this gospel, even as Jesus is reclining at table with the disciples, even as he is declaring that one of them will betray him and the others will desert him and deny him, he is absolutely lifting up the sovereignty of God and he is absolutely lifting up man's responsibility. And we see both of them together. The death And the resurrection and the betrayal of Jesus fulfills God's sovereign plan that He issued. Listen listen to what Revelation 13.8 says. This plan was before the foundation of the world. That's how sovereign God is over the death of His Son. And yet, you see clearly in this passage, Judas is not off the hook. He is held fully responsible by God. And it in no way violates God's sovereignty. And here we see Judas's responsibility in verse 25, because he says to Jesus' sobering statement, "Is it I, rabbi?" And notice how Jesus responds to him. He simply says, "You have said so. It is you." Now, according to John, None of the other disciples were aware of this conversation between Judas and Jesus. Because Peter asks John in John 13, 24 to 26 to ask Jesus who it is that's going to betray him. And in John 13, 26 and 27, Jesus answers John's question. And he says, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. And so when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said, what you are going to do, go and do it quickly. And John goes on to say that none of the disciples understood what Jesus was meaning. And then at the end of this chapter, John summarizes this account in John thirteen thirty. Listen to it carefully. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. I love how Warren Wiersbe summarized Judas' betrayal and his leaving the table. He said, for Judas, it is still night. For Judas, it will always be night. Friends, do you see in this second scene clearly why Jesus needed to go to the cross? He needed to go to the cross to redeem every single one of us from our unfaithfulness. He needed to go to the cross to redeem us from our betrayal. He needed to go to the cross to redeem us from our desertion. He needed to go to the cross to redeem us from our denial. He needed to go to the cross to redeem us from our pride and our posturing and our striving for greatness. He needed to redeem us because we refused to humble ourselves and take on the form of a servant. He needed to go to the cross to save us from the corruption that lies in every single one of our hearts and souls this morning. I want you to also notice in this second scene that Jesus' words about Judas' end teach us that it is better, it is better never to have been born into this world than to live without faith and grace in Christ. What Jesus said of Judas could be said of all of us. It would be better if we had never been born unless we have tasted of Jesus Christ. And as I've reminded you over and over through the Olivet Discourse, Judas is a perfect example of drawing near to Jesus, but never knowing him. Never knowing him in a saving way where your sins are forgiven and heaven is the certainty of your home in the life to come. And just like Judas, if you never come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, It will always be night for you in a literal place called hell. We not only see the preparation for the Passover and the pronouncement in the Passover. Finally, we see the picture of blessing in the Passover in verses 26 to 30. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said... Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now Matthew tells us in these verses that after Judas left and Jesus was alone with the remaining disciples, notice carefully what happens. Jesus transforms the Passover supper of the Old Covenant into the Lord's Supper of the New Covenant. And this is a significant event. The Passover was the oldest of the Jewish festivals. And now, no longer would God's people look back to a lamb in Egypt as the symbol of Yahweh's redeeming love and power and grace. Now they would look to the very Lamb of God who by the sacrificial shedding of His blood on the cross took away the sins of the world. And in verse 26, Matthew says that Jesus took bread and as was His custom before eating, He blessed it and prayed over it. Then he took this unleavened bread, and Matthew says he broke it, and he gave it to the disciples, and he said to them, take, eat, this is my body. Luke reports that Jesus adds the words, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now as I reminded you in the Passover, this unleavened bread symbolized severance from their old life in Egypt. A separation from worldliness and sin. And now Jesus transformed this bread to symbolize and signify a new life. A new life in Him. A life of holiness and a life of godliness. From now on, the bread would represent His own body that was sacrificed for the salvation of sinners. Notice carefully in the text. Because it's easy to miss this, friends. That Jesus breaking the bread does not symbolize his broken body. John makes it clear that in fulfillment of prophecy, in John 19, not one of his bones would be broken. Then in verse 27, after he gives this symbol of his body, Jesus took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. He said, drink it, all of you. Now, as I mentioned to you, there were traditionally four cups consumed in this feast. All of them pointing back to the promises of Exodus 6, 6 and 7. This cup that Jesus took at this time in the feast was probably the third cup, referred to as the cup of blessing. And notice what he says in verse 28. That as the disciples drank from the cup, Jesus said, This is my blood of the covenant. Luke says... He said, this is my blood of the new covenant, transforming the old into the new. It's important to note here in Matthew's gospel that this is the first time that Matthew uses the word covenant. And with the use of this word, Jesus is referring all the way back to Exodus chapter 24, when the law covenant that God gave his people on Mount Sinai was confirmed. And in Exodus chapter 24 and verse 8, the Bible says that Moses took the blood and he threw it on the people and he said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. And with this picture, it was not only a picture of God's forgiveness, it was also of a picture of His binding of the people to Himself in relationship. And now... With Jesus' death, with the shedding of His blood, we have a new covenant. A covenant that is not sealed with the sacrifice of animals. A covenant that is sealed with the shedding of the blood of the Son of God Himself. He is the once for all sacrifice for sins. And when He shed His blood on the cross, He did away with the Old Testament sacrificial system. And when you study scripture, friends, when God always brought reconciliation between himself and the people, the price was always blood. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And that's why Jesus says, if you'll look in the text carefully, that under this new covenant, his blood is poured out for many, for many For the forgiveness of sins. It begs the question doesn't it? Who are the many? Who are the many that receive this forgiveness? Well it includes everyone in the Old Testament. Who trusted in God before Christ died. As well as everyone under the new covenant. Who trust in Christ in the work that he did. It means it was good for Abel. It was good for Noah. It was good for Abraham. It was good for Moses. It was good for David. It was good for every true believer under the old covenant who believed in the future work of Christ. And it is good for you and me and anyone else who will believe looking backwards on Christ's work. Now notice the text. It doesn't say all. It says many. Why doesn't it say all? All. Because scripture is clear. You must believe in Christ. You must repent and turn from your sins. You must deny yourself and take up your cross. And follow Jesus daily. And the many are only those who will turn from their sin. And turn to Christ and trust in him. Now. I need to give a needed correction here because my job is not just to preach to you. My job is also to teach you. And so I'm going to teach you for a second a needed correction as it relates to this passage of Scripture. Some people have taken Jesus' words in these verses that we've just looked at literally and have developed a theological view known as transubstantiation which says that the bread and the body of Christ actually become the body and blood of Christ every time we take communion. And friends, that's not true. That is false teaching. The Bible teaches clearly that Jesus died once for all. And every time we take communion, if the bread and the cup literally become Jesus' body and blood, we are crucifying him over and over and over again. And that is theological heresy. It is wrong. The bread and the cup is a picture. It's a reminder of what Jesus has done And it is to be used as a memorial as we commune with Christ, as we draw near to him and remember what he's done for us. Now that was for free this morning, to correct something that needs to be corrected. Back to the text in verse 29. Jesus concludes this meal, and look at how he concludes it. I think this may be the best part of the passage. He concludes it with a promise that he will... Not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when he drinks it new with them in his father's kingdom. Can't you hear the promise of assurance in these words to his disciples and to us? What did he teach them in Matthew 24 and in Matthew 25? I'm coming again. And here's the signs of how you know when I'll come. And what is he saying in Matthew 26? I'm going to the cross. I'm preparing for the cross. And I've instituted a new blessing for you where you can commune with me and be reminded of what I've done for you. And this is how important this is. I'm promising you that I'm never going to eat this bread and I'm never going to drink this cup again until I come back and I gather you to myself and we sit down together at a table again. And then and only then will I eat and will I drink and I'll do it with you. Notice what the text says. Jesus doesn't say he hopes to do it. Jesus doesn't say that he thinks he might do it. Jesus says with certainty, I will do this. Disciples, Believer, today, you have this assurance that Jesus is coming back again. And Jesus is going to fulfill all prophecy concerning himself. And when that fulfillment comes, he will gather all of the many who belong to him. And he will sit down at table with them. And he will eat and drink with them for eternity. It's the promise of assurance in the gospel. Now notice in verse 30. Matthew tells us that the Passover meal concluded with the singing of a hymn they must have been baptists. And it was probably most scholars believe Psalm 118 that that's probably what they sang as they finished the meal and went out into the Mount of Olives. Have you ever read Psalm 118? It's amazing. I I read it. I wanted to read the whole thing to you, but I knew after even all the editing I did, the sermon was still too long, and I couldn't do it. So, I'm going to read a couple verses to you, though. Listen to it carefully. And listen, listen to it in the context of everything that I just taught you about this meal. And see if it doesn't take on a different meaning for you. Psalm 118, verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. That's how they begin. Give thanks to the Lord. In verses 22 to 24, listen to what they sang. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Well, that's a whole new meaning after that meal, isn't it? And listen to how the psalmist ends in verses 28 and 29. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And they sang. And then they went out into the Mount of Olives where Jesus would pray fervently to his father, be betrayed by Judas and arrested by the officers and experience the loneliness that was his time. Now I want to close by pointing out to you four important doctrinal truths from this passage and give you an illustration and ask you a question. That's what's coming and then it'll be over. Here are the four truths. Number one, this passage reminds us of the great doctrine. And I'm using theological words this morning. I'm going to explain to you what they mean. Of the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. What does that mean, Pastor? It means that Jesus pointed to us in this meal that he would die in our place as our substitute. That he would take our guilt our shame, our rebellion, our sin, and place it on Himself so that we, in exchange when we come to Him, can have His goodness and His righteousness and His godliness and His holiness. Jesus gave His blood so we could have peace with the Father It's exactly what 2 Corinthians 5.21 says when Paul writes, He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we could be the righteousness of God in him. Jesus was the only substitute. He was the perfect substitute because Jesus is the only one who has ever lived a perfect, sinless, spotless life. Every single person in this room, every single person in the world is born in this world tainted by sin. And our sin separates us from God. Only Jesus was born of a virgin. Only Jesus was born sinless. Only Jesus lived a sinless, perfect, spotless life. That's why only Jesus could go to the cross. And only Jesus could hang there and shed his blood for you, for me, for the many who would believe. He was our substitute and you can just look at your life this morning friend and you can ask yourself what are the sins i struggle with what are the sins that make me feel guilty what are the sins that cause me shame and grief what are the things that i'm so embarrassed of you can ask yourself those questions this morning and you can look at the cross and you can see there at the cross as jesus hung on that cross every single one of those things that came into your mind as I was speaking to you were placed on Jesus. He died for every single one of them. He shed his blood for every single one of them as your substitute. And when you turn from your sin and you confess that you're a sinner and that you can't save yourself and that you need Jesus, Jesus takes all of that stuff on you away and he replaces it all With his righteousness, his goodness, his perfection. So that when you come to Jesus, don't miss this. God looks at you. He no longer sees your guilt, your shame, your mistakes. All of those things that you're embarrassed of. Do you know what he sees? Jesus. Perfection. And you can live your life trying to be perfect and never achieve it. Or you can confess your sin and your dependence on Christ and come to him, listen, and he'll make you perfect in himself. That is the gospel. Number two, this passage teaches us the great doctrinal truth of the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins is our greatest need before this holy God and it is only through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ that we can experience this forgiveness. And God's forgiveness is not like your forgiveness. It's not like my forgiveness. God doesn't keep a record of the wrongs. God doesn't hold bitterness towards you. When God forgives you through the blood and the work of His Son, the Bible says He removes it as far as the east is from the west, that He remembers it no more. And He remembers it no more because He sees you perfect in His Son. Why would He need to remember it anymore? That's why we sing the great hymn, Jesus paid it all, all to Him I owe. That's where the forgiveness lies. Doctrinal truth number three it's redemption. We are set free by the purchase of Christ's blood on our behalf. Free. Oh, we all love something for free. Right? That's why you get on MacBid and see if you can steal a deal. You want something free. In Christ, you are free. And it doesn't cost you a thing. Jesus bought your freedom. Number four, when you come to Christ, as Jesus reminds his disciples in this text, you're secure. John 10, Jesus says, I am the father of one. I hold you in my hand. No one can come into my hand and take you out. Nothing can come in and get you when you are in Christ. You are secure. Listen, you are so secure when you're in Christ that you're as sure as heaven if you were already standing there this morning. You are so secure in Christ, no matter what disease, no matter what illness, no matter what broken relationship, no matter what comes in and out of your life, you are so secure in Christ that nothing or no one can take you from Christ. You don't keep yourself secure. ADT doesn't keep you secure. Only the Lord Jesus Christ keeps you secure And He promises that He will present you before the heavenly throne pure, blotless, sinless, blameless in Him. That's how secure you are. That's the truth. That was worth coming to church for today. That's worth resting and building your life on. Now the illustration. The Passover... Looked to the past and the deliverance of God's people from Egypt. It looked to the present. It was a feast uh, encouraging them and strengthening them of God's faithfulness on their journey. And it looked to the future. Throughout its practice, the people would literally say towards the end of the feast, this year we eat in the land of bondage. Next year we eat in the land of promise. And they would always set an empty chair at the table, Elijah's chair. The great prophet who would prepare the way for the Lord to come. And they always ate it in anticipation of that day. And each of these themes are found in Jesus' transformation of the Lord's Supper. We look back and we look to the cross and we remember His body. And we remember His blood. And we remember That our sins have been dealt with. We look to the present. And we find strength. And joy. And hope. In the difficult journey of life that we're in now. And we look to the future. And we anticipate the ultimate feast. When Jesus will sit down with us. And drink and eat with us. That's the picture. Now the question. If the disciples left this final meal singing a hymn of joy, how much more should you? It's lonely to lead. And Jesus is experiencing that loneliness as he prepares for the cross. He'll be betrayed, deserted, denied, but he extended a blessing for all who would come after him to rest and trust in him. Would you be one of the many today? Would you turn to Jesus? Would you trust in him? Would you sing for joy for the salvation that he's given you? Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for teaching us through your spirit today. We thank you for these reminders of the work of your son. And we thank you for the gift of your son. And for all that he has done for us. We thank you today for your sovereignty God. And for your love displayed through Jesus. And we pray that we would find strength today in our journey. We pray that we would find hope in Christ. And we pray for those in this room today who don't know Christ as their Savior, that in these simple scenes and pictures, you would draw them to yourself and make them one of the many. Well, we love you, and we thank you for loving us and for this time to be together as your people. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.